Got a Bible, grab it. I don't know how to transition that. I just think we ought to go about with just singing some songs for the next hour. Um, if you have your journal, grab that, Second Timothy. Uh, if you don't have one, Jim is in the back. If you want to raise your hand, we've got plenty of these. We'd love to give you one. I know I put them on the spot. But we're going to use this every week, so make sure you bring this with you. We want to be in the Word, and I want you... The beauty of this, by the way, is um, you take notes in this. You have your own personal little commentary that you can refer back to. From here on out, when we do books of the Bible, and we always do them, we're going to give you one of these. So my goal is one day, whenever I'm old and you kick me out of this place, maybe you have one for every single book of the Bible, uh, and we walk through all of them. So um, grab that and meet me there. All right, let me just catch you up. Second Timothy is the last book of the Bible that the Apostle Paul ever wrote. History tells us that the Emperor Nero is going to take him out, and he's going to behead him soon. Paul knew this, which makes what he writes significant, because as you read this, what I want you to read it like is you're reading the last words of a dying man. However, not just that, because Paul knew what his fate was, read this as the last words of a wise man, too. A man who had lived a life. He, he lived a full life. He had struggled with suffering. He had fought the good fight. He was giving Timothy his last words of wisdom. It's like sitting down. I was in Naples um, a couple months, maybe a month or two ago, and I'm sitting down at this guy's house named Jim Rubington, and he's 95 years old, and we're sitting down having a conversation, and he's talking about the Brooklyn Dodgers and what it was like to live in Brooklyn at that time. And I'm just sitting there soaking it all in because this man had fought in World War II. He had lived a full life. And by the way, halfway through the conversation, he's like, so what do you do for a living? And I'm like, well, I'm a pastor. And he goes, if you haven't caught on, my last name's Rubington. I've been a Jew for 95 years. Don't try to convert me now. Yes, sir. Let's just talk. That's what Paul was like. He was passing down wisdom. Wisdom from his life. Like the old quote goes, wisdom enters through our wounds. Paul had many wounds, and it created in him words that we should read. We should digest. We should hang on to. There's so much here. So here's what we're going to cover today. Look at verse 3. I thank God, whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience. As I remember you consistently in my prayers... Constantly, I keep messing that up, constantly in my prayers, night and day. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that, you, that I may be filled with joy. I am reminded of your sincere faith, the faith that dwelt first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. For this reason, I am reminding you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Let me pray. Father, I thank you so much for these words. God, I'm praying that you would make these words come alive, that we would fan into flame this, this spirit that you've put inside of us of power, love, and self-control, that we would see your goodness in the land of the living, and Lord, that we'd be hopeful and encouraged by these words. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. How many of you guys watched the national championship game, the college football national championship game? All right, how many of you Georgia fans have watched it three or four times? All right. <laughs> One of the, my favorite parts of the championship game was at the very end of the game when Nick Saban met Kirby Smart at the center of the field. Saban had the biggest smile on his face, and for a guy that doesn't smile much, that says a lot because he was genuinely proud of Kirby Smart. 
He probably wasn't proud of his haircut, but you know, that's another story. Sometimes, sometimes our proudest moments are when we see the investment that we've made in other people come to life and we celebrate the time that we spent investing in them. Kirby Smart spent seven years on Nick Saban's staff, seven years of investment into a relationship that all boiled down into this climactic moment. I think that's how Paul felt in 2 Timothy. I think Paul is sitting there in a Roman jail cell and he's thinking about his friend Timothy and his head is held high because he knows that the work that he had started is going to continue on into the next generation and it's going to multiply its impact through his friend. See, maybe today you're sitting here, you're wondering, does my life make an impact? That's a fair question, but the reality is it's small investments into other people and its faithfulness to God that leaves an impact in this world. So today, today I want to show you a few practical ways that Paul passed on his life to Timothy and how you can be encouraged and how you can encourage the people around you to continue to live out their purpose and calling. All right, so check out verse three again. Here's what he says. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors, with a clear conscience, as I remember you consistently in my prayers night and day. Here's number one. Here's the first thing I want you to notice. For Paul, for Paul, prayer wasn't something you do. It was a rhythm of life. You notice how he says night and day, he's telling you he prayed continually. He had a rhythm of prayer. I find it fascinating how formulaic our prayers tend to be. Growing up, I didn't grow up in a Christian home, but we prayed every single night in my house, and we prayed the same exact prayer. Anybody else? Now I lay me down to sleep. I pray the Lord my soul to keep. If I shall die before I wake, I pray the Lord my soul to take. By the way, what an awful prayer for a five-year-old to memorize. Great, thanks, Mommy. I'm going to go to sleep wondering if I'm going to wake up tomorrow. (laughs) Like, who thinks like that? But we do this all the time. I think about my football coach. Every single practice, without any exceptions, he would drop a few F-bombs, and then he'd drop his head and do the Lord's Prayer, right? F and good practice. All right, let's pray. Like, we, we do this all the time, and now here, here's the thing, though, is liturgy, liturgy has its place, but if you're liturgical in the sense of which you create a rhythm that is empty words, you miss the point of prayer altogether. If you've ever taken the time to read the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus is asked by his disciples to teach us how to pray. It's in Matthew chapter 6. By the way, this is where you get the Lord's Prayer from. Well, he tells his disciples a series of what not to do before he tells them what to do. So he says, hey, don't pray to be seen. Don't pray with big, impressive words. And then he says, but if you are going to pray, go pray in secret so that your heavenly Father who sees in secret will hear your prayers. Here's what he's saying. Write this down. The relationship is more important than the request. That's what Jesus' whole point is. It's about a relationship. You see, you only start to pray differently whenever you recognize that. Whenever you recognize that prayer is actually about connecting with God and communicating with your Father who is in heaven, that's when you'll stop just asking for a bunch of stuff and you'll start devoting yourself to a rhythm of dependence. By the way, can I tell you how you know if you're doing this or not? Let me just give you one quick way to do that. Think about the last week and every single time you prayed. When you prayed over the last week, was most of your prayer filled with request or was it filled with thankfulness? let, let Let me say it this way. If God answered every one of your prayers for yesterday, would anybody but you benefit from it? See, prayer for Paul, prayer was a rhythm of connecting with God and 
advocating for his friends. It was thinking about other people. That's why he says, I thank God, as did my ancestors. I thank God for you because I remember you day in and day out. Now check this out because this is really, really important. You've got to remember Paul's situation because you're going to see something super powerful about prayer that can actually help you through your situation. Here's number two. Prayer reminded Paul that his situation was temporary. Again, look at verse three. As you digest this verse, look what he says. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience, as I remember you constantly in my prayers night and day. Every single time that Paul prayed, he was reminding himself that the 60 years or so that he would live on this earth were just a fraction of eternity that he would spend with God. Prayer put his life into perspective. It reminded him that he was connecting himself to something so much bigger than the temporary. It reminded him that he didn't serve Nero, he served his God. Listen, sometimes I think we need that same reminder. We don't serve a donkey or an elephant, we serve the lion of Judah who became the lamb that was slain. Paul needed to know that too. He needed to know that Nero did not have control over his life. God did. See, I don't know what you're going through today, but I can just tell you that prayer is a reminder that you have a God who's bigger than you. That's why prayer is the most humbling thing you can do because prayer in and of itself is a confession that there's something bigger that is in control out there. That's why I think Paul could say this in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, 16. Listen to these words. They're so powerful. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, but the things that are unseen are eternal. That inner self that Paul is referring to is formed through a rhythm of prayer. Listen to me, sometimes life throws lemons at you and the only way you're going to make lemonade is to change your perspective. Don't you see it? Paul is sitting in a Roman prison cell knowing what's coming. He knows that the emperor holds his life in his hands and his response is, I don't serve you. I serve my king. And because I serve my king, well, I don't really worry about what you're going to do to me because life is eternal anyway. Look, there are two takeaways that when things come knocking at your door from just this one verse that I think you can take. Here's number one, or letter A, if you will. You need to remember that your faith is firm. Again, look at it one more time, verse three. I thank God whom I serve, as did my ancestors with a clear conscience. Again, Paul is sitting in a jail cell, and his conscience is clear because he understands that his firm is faith. All right, his faith is firm. There you go, English language. Paul's ancestors. Connect the dots. We're the Jews, right? He's telling you that the God that he serves is the same God who created the heavens and the earth. He's telling you that Jesus is the same God who was the Alpha and the Omega, the beginning and the end. He is eternal. He is pre-existent, and he is in complete control of his situation. That's what Paul means when he says, I serve the same God as my ancestors. Because the God that Paul served was real and true, it didn't really matter what he was going through, it was worth it. And because the God that you serve is real and true, listen, all of whatever you're going through will come to pass too. That's the gift of a firm faith. That's what it does for you. When you know without a shadow of a doubt that Jesus is who he said that he is, you can face today's troubles and it doesn't really matter what's thrown at you. 
I love the way that my friend, he's a pastor in Jacksonville, Joby Martin said it. He says, if the tomb is empty, anything is possible. Isn't that true? Because Jesus rose from the dead, the same power that rose Jesus from the dead lives inside of you. Don't you get that? God's spirit lives in you. So never forget this. You can measure God's love by the cross and his power by the resurrection. So God loved you so much that he went to the cross to save you and he was powerful enough to defeat the one thing that most of us are afraid of. He took the thing that we fear the most and he showed you that death has absolutely no power over him. And because it has no power over him, the same God that rose Jesus from the dead lives in you. It has no power over you either. Don't you think that Paul understood that? He watched a man be beaten and crucified. By the way, you realize Jesus wasn't the first person to ever be beaten and crucified for claiming to be the Messiah. If you actually go back and read history, it happened all the time. What made Jesus different than every other person? He rose from the dead. So tomorrow, if you raise from the dead, I will listen to you, I promise. Like, I think he holds the trump card. Three days later, this man raises from the dead. Jesus is different than everyone else. So Paul watched that guy, and it changed everything. Paul had an encounter with the risen Lord, and it changed everything. Let me just ask you, have you ever had an encounter with Jesus? I'm not asking if you go to church. I'm not asking if you read your Bible. I'm asking, have you ever had an encounter with the risen Lord? Because if you haven't, when the storms of life come, you are going to run. I'm just telling you, it happens all the time. The big buzzword in 2022 is deconstruction. You don't have to deconstruct your faith if your faith is firm. So here's the deal. Knowing who Jesus is changes everything. I was listening to a podcast yesterday by a guy named Mark Sayers. He said, the the problem with today's world is we haven't done a good job of discipling. And because we haven't done a good job of discipling, the first sign of tragedy, like we run. So imagine if I came in here today and I'm 10 minutes late, which means we'd probably all be on time. <laughs> that wasn't in my notes. Uh, and, and I'm like, man, I'm so sorry I'm late. I got, I got hit by an 18-wheeler on Highway 9 and it was, I mean, it was awful. And, I, I, and you're like, what? You don't have a scratch on your body. Like, what are you talking about? No, 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 I promise you, it was miraculous. I got hit. I, I mean, I was on life support. He messed me up real bad and I just came in here. It was a miracle. You'd be like, you're a liar. Why? Because you can't have an encounter with an 18-wheeler and not be changed. Listen, the same thing's true with Jesus. You can't have an encounter with the most powerful force ever, ever imaginable and not be changed by it. But for so many of us, that's our story. No, I, I know Jesus, but nothing's different. So let me just ask you the question again. Have you ever had an encounter? Because here's the deal. God's not afraid of any of our skepticism. He's not afraid of our questioning. Matter of fact, I think the most firm thing you can do with your faith is put on your skeptical lens and ask away. Dig deep into the word and study it. I think one of the most tragic things that has happened over the course of the last hundred years is biblical literacy is at an all-time low. We just show up and expect somebody to give us a couple rules for thought for 30 minutes and go home. What you need is you need the power of this word to come into you and change you from the inside out. And as you do that, as you do that, it, it creates a firm faith. I think one of my greatest fears is that 
the cultural Christianity that happens so frequently in the South is not going to be strong enough when cultural opposition grows to the point where it's not worth having faith anymore. So we're just going to walk away. I mean, that's what theologians are saying are happening in America right now anyway. Guys, the saddest thing that I saw happen over the last two years is the moment we shut down. And, and keep in mind, when we shut down church, we all thought it was going to be for two weeks. Do you know how many people just never came back? None of us knew we'd be walking into year three of this. We all thought, hey, two weeks to stop spread, we're back. And so many people walked away because our faith wasn't solid enough to withstand the pressure of the things that we didn't like that were going on around us. Listen, no matter your circumstances, if your faith isn't firm, you will fail when the demands of life come knocking at your door. Here's letter B. You need to know the gospel. Here's what I mean by that. Paul was not sinless, but he was guiltless before God. Do you know how powerful that is to know that? The gospel is what gave Paul a clear conscience. He wasn't clear in his conscience because he never sinned. He was clear in his conscience because he was guiltless. He knew the gospel. He knew that Jesus did, already did everything necessary to save him. He knew that the moment that he would take his last breath on this earth, the moment that that awful moment would come, where the gavel would come down, his head would come off, that he would hear those words, well done, you good and faithful servant. And that heaven and earth would come together for him in that moment. Nothing would change. He would continue to exist for all of eternity. He knew that he didn't have to prove himself because in front of God, he was already completely justified. I love the way Tim Keller, pastor in New York, said it. He says, the gospel is not the diving board into Christianity. It's the pool that we go deeper into. Here's what he's saying. For many of us, we just think the gospel is a prayer that we pray and we move on. He's like, no, it's something you continue to go deeper and deeper into every single day of your life. I mean, look at verses three through seven in your journal. Do you see how many times it says remember? Four times. Paul tells him to remember. When things get hard, you have to go back to what you know. You've got to call to memory the beautiful truths and the promises of God, and you need to tell them to yourself. And listen, you need to tell them back to God through prayer. Do you know why? When you remind God of his promises in prayer, what you're doing is you're reminding yourself of God's promises in prayer because God is always faithful, even when we are faithless. Look at verse 4. As I remember your tears, I long to see you that I may be filled with joy. I'm reminded of your sincere faith, a faith that dwelt first in your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. All right, here's number three. Faith is from God alone, but faith is never alone. Do you see the connection between faith and joy? You know what it is? It's community. It was his grandmother, it was his mom, it's Paul, it's community. By the way, that word joy there, I found this to be fascinating. It comes from the same Greek root word, kara, um, which is the same exact root word that you get the word grace from, which is charis in Greek. Here's what he's trying to show you. Joy is a byproduct of grace, and it comes from God. See, happiness it literally comes from the root word happenstance. It, it, it's circumstantial. It, it's dependent upon what's going on. Joy is deeper. Paul is saying that there's a joy there because it's produced by the gospel. It's an overflow of the Spirit of God in you. That word there is used on purpose. Do you, do you remember the fruits of the Spirit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, self-control, gentleness, against all such things. They're, they're, you, Paul's saying this. They're called fruits because they're a byproduct of a healthy life. 
It's like, imagine this. Imagine I went home today, and uh, th- this is like a real-world scenario. My wife comes up to me, and she's like, there's a tree that's dead in the backyard, and I need you to go take care of it. Well, because, like, I tell her all the time, God didn't gift my hands. He gifted my head, so I'm going to try to figure out how to find somebody else to do that. Basically, I'm lazy. Um, I would think, I would sit in my living room and think for about 10 minutes, how do I get out of this work? I said, I got an idea. I'm going to go to Publix. I'm going to buy a bunch of red, ripe apples. I'm going to come home. I'm going to get on the ladder, and I'm going to staple them to that tree, and then I'm going to walk inside and be like, I don't know what you're talking about. The tree's not dead. Dead trees don't produce fruit. And she's going to look at me like I'm an idiot, but she's going to be like, whatever. We'll talk in a week. You know what happened in about a week? Every one of those apples would fall to the ground, and they would rot, and they would die, right? You know that's what most of our lives look like? Stapling good fruit to a bad tree. That's why every year we do New Year's resolutions and they never work. Because we're just trying to change the activity without actually changing the tree. Here's what the fruit of the Spirit says. Cultivate the garden, the fruit will come. This was, I wish somebody would have told me this. If you want to have more love in your life, don't pursue love, pursue Jesus. And you'll become more loving. You want to have more joy, peace, patience, kindness. You don't have to pursue any of those things because that's fake fruit, a real fruit on a fake tree. Water the roots of the tree and the habits will come. That's, you have to go deeper. Unfortunately, we live in a world that emphasizes trying to produce fruit without cultivating discipleship. But the reality is when we do this, look, guys, we've done this for the last hundred years in America. If you try to produce fruit without cultivating discipleship, what you get is when a crisis comes, there's no faith. If you'll produce discipleship and pursue Jesus, what will happen is the fruit will come and the tree will be ripe and it will be good. And when the times come where there is a dry and weary land, you'll be able to sustain. That's what Paul's talking about. That joy, that connection. Now watch this. The connection there is tied to a central theme that I think is all through the book. Hey, write this down because this is so important. One of the primary ways that God produces the fruit of the Spirit in our lives is through community. Now, now somebody pushed back on this uh, uh, last week, and I was like, no, but actually go read it. Go read what Paul says. The faith came from God, but it was also through the laying on my hands. So it was through the community. It was his grandmother, his mom. It was Paul all cultivating together through God that actually produced the joy in his life. Paul is saying that Timothy, his beloved friend and brother in Christ, when they were together, produced in him a joy that lasted always. Guys, when you surround yourself with godly people, God fills you with joy. Look at it. Let me show it to you. Look at verse 5. I'm reminded of your sincere faith. He's about to show you how. A faith that dwelt first with your grandmother Lois and your mother Eunice, and now I'm sure dwells in you as well. By the way, before I get there, let me, let me just do a little drive-by here. You notice whose name is not mentioned there? Keep this up for a second. His dad. Men, let, let me say this really quickly. I, I mean this, and I believe this all in my heart. When men lead, everything changes. That's why we do city men here. But I also want you to hear me say this. If you're a single mom in the room, if you're watching online, if you're living with a spouse that just isn't a believer and you feel like there's no hope, God can use you. Matter of fact, he will use you. You notice, if you go back and read the book of Acts, Timothy's dad's name isn't even mentioned. 
means he's probably an absent father. Listen, I think that God uses our faithfulness, and I think it's reminders like this that say, just keep going. You're not without hope. His mom, Lois, I'm sure she sat there wondering, I can't can't do this on my own. Yes, you can. And you might just produce a Timothy in your life. You might produce a son or a daughter that goes on and does some incredible things because you were faithful to Jesus, so just keep going. Here's the other part. Church, God designed it so that we could fill the gaps as a community. That's the point. Paul says older men disciple younger men and younger men. The whole point is that we live together as a church family. We don't compartmentalize our lives. Like you don't have your family life and your church life. I was talking to somebody about this the other day. You know, the apostle Peter was married and his wife traveled with them. So they lived their life in community. They did everything together. So when those times came, whenever you needed a village to raise your kids, they were there together, walking through the good, the bad, and the ugly of life together. See, when we live life together, when we live alongside of one another, God builds up the family of God. And if you're in the room today, you need to go alongside of somebody because you can produce in this church a Timothy by filling in the gaps with one another. There are people in this room whose lives will be changed because of your investment in it. All right, underline that word sincere. Sincere faith. That, that word literally means without hypocrisy. If you were here two weeks ago and you heard Dustin preach out of Romans chapter 12, it's the only other place in the Bible that that word comes. It's when he says, let love be genuine. It's the same word. See, that word comes from an ancient word. Uh, it really means mask. Um, it, it was the ancient playwrights. If you think like Shakespearean plays, back then uh, only men were actors. So they played the part of the man and the woman, which means that they would put on a mask, they would take off the mask, and they put on another one to get into character. Do you know what the most detrimental, worst form of Christianity is? When we put on our faith mask when we come to church. Now, look at the inverse of this. What brought joy to Paul's life was Timothy's faith was without hypocrisy. He always lived a genuine life. He, he never faked it. See, I, I mean, there, there's nothing more detrimental to society than when Christians show up on Sunday and they live like everybody else Monday through Saturday. When we wear masks, depending on our circumstances, we communicate to the people around us that we are fakes. And this is a huge problem for us because it's not that we don't have faith. Hear, hear me in this. It's, it's that most of us in, in our world, me included oftentimes, are just double-minded and half-hearted in our faith. And our faith only works for us whenever things are going well. It's because we've compartmentalized our life. The thing that brought Paul joy was that Timothy's faith was sincere. It was without hypocrisy. It was transparent. What you saw is what you got in Timothy's life, and that was powerful. See, it's that kind of faith that produces joy in the people around you that are hurting. It's a faith that says, you know what? It doesn't really matter what my circumstances are. I'm okay. And I'm going to show you that I'm okay. Guys, we need more people right now that have faith without hypocrisy. I'm not saying that we need to be perfect. Nobody's perfect. I'm saying that we need to communicate that we're not perfect. I'm saying that we need to, whenever you walk into this door, communicate that it's okay not to be okay. Like, yes, our lives are jacked up. Join the club. Jesus came to save those who are sick, he said. Not those who are perfect. None of us are perfect. 
We need people who are working out their faith in the middle of the process, and they're doing it in front of us, and they still believe. We need people who apologize when they've messed up. You know how powerful it is to humble yourself to apologize to your kids in those moments? We need people who are willing to do that. We need people who have such conviction that they hold to God's word and yet such grace that they're not just jerks. And when you do those two things together, powerful things happen. For Paul, Timothy's faith was real. And when he experienced Timothy's faith in these circumstances, it brought joy. See, when Paul and Timothy had experienced a faith like this that was real, it not only brought joy to them, but I'm just telling you, it produced in them a faith. He got to see that he wasn't alone. Guys, everybody in this room needs somebody like Paul and Timothy in their life with sincere faith. We all need people in our lives that are going to have a solid, rooted, gospel-centered faith because the circumstances are going to come, and you're going to need to know that it's okay whenever they do. All right, check out the next verse. This one's huge. For this reason, and that reason is, he's talking about the faith that he received from his family. I remind remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. For God gave us a spirit, not of fear, but of power and love and self-control. Notice that Paul says to fan into flame the gift of God. Listen, God has already put everything at your disposal that you need Because he put his spirit inside of you, and it's our job to fan it into flame. We've got to get on fire for God. God's part was putting the spirit inside of you. Our part is to be intentional with our lives. It's choosing to be a part of a church. It's choosing to dig into discipleship with the people around us. God has given, watch this, God has given you an ember. And when you do those things, it becomes a fire. That's what Paul's saying. Everything you have, all the ingredients are there. Now fan it into flame. Fan it into flame. See, every gift that Timothy had was from God. Every gift. His faith was from God through the gospel. His gift for ministry was from God through the Spirit. Even whenever you read verse 7, where it says, God did not give us a spirit. Actually, uh, if if you read it in the original language, it should say the Spirit. Uh, He's talking about the Holy Spirit there, that that pneumatos. It's not a spirit. It's God's Spirit. God gave him the Holy Spirit in him. And that spirit that you get, here's what he's showing you. It does not produce fear. God's spirit is producing power and love and self-control in you. And when you're leading out of power, love, and self-control, it produces joy in the people around you. Remember the undercurrent of the book? Remember what's going on? I think you have to be reminded of that to get it. Paul's in prison. He's about to be executed. The church in Ephesus, it's, it's under pressure and things are really hard. They seem to be falling apart. I'm sure, I'm sure that Timothy was scared. Like that, oh my goodness kind of moment. I don't know what's going to happen. I'm sure he had thoughts of regret. He probably thought I should have never followed Paul here. I should have stayed home with my family. I don't know. He maybe daydreamed about selling insurance and clocking out at five o'clock with no responsibilities. Do you know what the most repeated command in the entire Bible list? Write it down. What is it? Say it out loud. One more time, louder. Do not be afraid. Almost 366 times in the Bible. Do you know why it's commanded so many times? Because fear is what we do. 
God's not up in heaven saying, breathe, breathe, Clayton, I need you to, I need you to breathe. No, you breathe naturally. He says, don't be afraid because we all have a propensity to be afraid. Here's what fear is. Fear is when you take your trust and you put it on your circumstances and not on your God. That's what fear is. Paul's like, bro, that spirit inside of you, that doesn't produce fear. Because that spirit inside of you should give you an eternal perspective. Yes, it's hard. Yes, the world is hard. But that's not God's spirit. I love how personal he is. Put it back up there. Look how personal he is. He says, it comes through the laying on of my hands. See that? I remind you to fan into flame the gift of God, which is in you through the laying on of my hands. Paul is sitting there saying, Timothy, I ordained you. By the way, don't don't be confused. Ordination, it's not even really in the Bible. It's a commissioning. Uh, Basically, what he's saying is, I put my hands on you and... I want you to live out the spirit-filled giftings of God that you already have. That's important because all of us have spirit-filled giftings that God has given us. Some of us, some of us do vocational ministry. That means we get paid to tell people about Jesus. But we all are supposed to do, tell people about Jesus. You know what the difference between me and you is? I get paid to tell people about Jesus, and you're just good for nothing. No, I'm just, come on, you're supposed to laugh at that. I worked hard on that joke. So, all right, 10.30, don't tell that one. That doesn't work. When you became a believer, you were put into a mission field too. All of us were. Just like Timothy. Our fields are just different. See, think about the amount of credibility that Paul would have had here. He walked by faith in the hardest of times. He stood in front of kings and he shared the gospel. He sat in a prison cell knowing that his life was about to come to an end. And that same guy is the guy that put his hands on Timothy. And commissioned him and said, hey, look, I know. I know what you're walking through is scary, but God is faithful. Don't be afraid, Timothy. Keep going. I want you to hear me say this clearly. Because Jesus rose from the dead, you don't have to worry about death. You have absolutely nothing to be afraid of. You know how the story ends. You have this book. Jesus told you how it ends. Revelation 21 and 22, one day he is going to come back and he's going to wipe away every tear from your eyes. Death will be no more and he is going to bring his kingdom down. There is nothing to be afraid of if you trust Jesus. But the reason why Paul tells him over and over again, don't be afraid, is because we have a propensity to forget. Even when we know the truth, we have a propensity to forget. Don't be afraid. When you begin to forget that God's spirit is inside of you, that produces fear in you, and your flame begins to burn out. I was thinking about what's my greatest fear in life. I don't know why this came to my mind. It wasn't death. It wasn't anything else. They rolled their eyes whenever we walked through this at staff meeting. I was like, my greatest fear in life is that my two little girls are going to convince me that it's time to get a cat. <laughs> I'm like, oh gosh. Oh gosh. Like, I can't even have dinner parties in this. Like, I went to bed dreaming about this. I'm like, I can't even invite you over to my house. The, the fear of disgust that would come over me after making fun of them for years and years and years, and you come over and you see this little evil creature running over my house. I might as well just give up. You know what fear does, though? It doesn't produce anything good in me. It makes me avoid my kids, because I know. One, one day, we, we found a cat in our neighborhood. Uh, this is a true story. And they, they conned me into trying to trap this cat. So we're running around the neighborhood trying to find it. 
and I'm scared that we're going to give it a home. And Allison finds on Nextdoor app that these people have lost a cat, so she calls them. She describes the cat. The whole family gets in the car. They drive over to come get this cat, only to find out it's not their cat, which you want to talk about the level of disappointment that they had when they had to drive away. Well, the, the cat gets out of the box. We got like three neighbors helping us. We trap it in this yard, and this lady comes out of the house, and she's like, what are you doing with my cat? Oh, sorry. Well, then after that, they, our kids wanted a cat so bad, so we went to Target and bought them fake cats because I was like, hey, this is as far as we're going. Anyway, that has nothing to do with anything. Um, you have to. You have to put the oxygen into your faith. That's what fanning it into faith, uh, fanning it into a flame means. That phrase, by the way, it's active and continual. It means you have to continue to do this. Philippians chapter 2, Paul says it this way. He, he says that you have to work out your faith with fear and trembling. Again, the reason why that matters so much is he's not talking about workspace salvation. Actually, salvation is multiple words in Greek. You have justification. Jesus does all of that work. But then you have sanctification, which is the experience of growing in your Christ-likeness. You do that. You do that. You produce in you the flame. It's the same concept. Working out your faith faith with fear and trembling or fanning it into flame is like exercising your faith. So let me give you a couple practical ways to exercise your faith and then we'll close it out. Here's letter A. You have to put it into action. You have to put it into action. Every single time that you act on your faith, you produce in you a habit that makes your faith come alive. Every time you say no to sin, the next time that sin comes up, it's easier to say no to. Every time that you decide to walk by faith in any situation, it produces more faith in you so that the next time that you need to act on your faith, you will. It's like working out. If you ever work out, when you go to the gym and you work out, you actually feel like you're getting weaker. However, six months later, you realize that you got much stronger and much faster than you ever thought you could. The exact same thing is true. When you deposit faith into your life, in those moments you feel weak, and yet you're producing exponentially more growth for the next time that you need to exercise your faith. This is why faith is active. It's only produced when you exercise it. For many of us, we wait for God to move, and we don't do anything until he does. And that, to me, guys, is a misunderstanding of how all of this works. God does the justification we do the sanctification through his spirit in us. It's active and it's present. We produce faith by exercising our faith. It's already inside of you. You need to fan it into flame to unleash its power, which goes to letter B, spiritual rhythms. This one shouldn't surprise you. We talk about it all the time. The way of Jesus is a dependent relationship with the Father. It's when we spend time with God that we build trust in him, and that's what unleashes faith when things get hard. It's prayer, it's Bible study, it's our church community. These are the three primary ways that we fan into flame our faith. Think about it. Your faith is strongest when you're deeply committed to God's word and God's people, right? For Paul and Timothy, the battle was at their door, and yet they needed the spirit of God to be unleashed in their lives so that they could produce the joy that each one of them needed to move through the day. And that happened because they were in community. I love the way Oswald Chambers, look at this quote. God can achieve his purposes either through the absence of human power and resources or the abandonment of reliance on them. All through history, God has chosen and used nobodies because their unusual dependence on him made possible 
the unique display of his power and grace. He chose to use somebodies only when they renounce dependence on their natural abilities and resources. That's the beauty of it. Like my old football coach used to say, the best kind of ability is availability. Right? Are you open and are you available to God? Are you relying on him? Because the only, only requirement to fanning into flame your faith is that you're available, that you pursue God's glory and not your glory. And as you pursue God's glory, the spirit of love, power, and self-control comes oozing out of you. Now listen, power, when rightly handled, produces humility. Love casts out fear. And self-control means self-discipline or a sound mind. It actually, the, the, the word there in Greek is a wise head. It literally means a wise head. It's a different word than the self-control used in the fruits of the Spirit. You know why? Because this self-control can be produced as you fan it into flame. That's what he's telling you. It means that you become wise. Here's what Paul's saying. When you are led by the Spirit, when you fan into flame your faith, there are going to be times that you are going to face that tough decisions are going to need to be happening. But take heart. In those times, God is going to give you power that will produce humility to make a wise decision that will ultimately produce in yourself and in others a love that casts out fear. No, that's a lot there. So let me just say it this way. I'm going to boil that statement down to this. When you work on your faith, it will produce wisdom in your life. It's that simple. So I don't know what you're going through. But when that hypothetical situation comes up, when it happens, God's spirit is going to be inside of you and listen to me. You will be wise if you pursue him. Don't you love that? Don't you love that? God's spirit is active and it's living inside of you. And when you fan it into flame, you will become on fire for him. And what it produces in you is power, love, and self-control. I mean, don't we all need that? Especially right now when things feel weak. Is there anything in the world more contagious than a humble confidence that, loves to, that leads to loving deeply and making wise decisions? In all the uncertainty of the world, Timothy needed to know that he was able to face the day because, because God was producing power, love, and self-control in him. See, in all the uncertainty of your day, you can walk by faith too. You can fan into flame this gift that God has given you and what it will produce in you is power, love, and self-control. It'll produce wisdom. It's the spirit inside of you that does not produce fear. So, so hear me. Listen, fear is natural. But if you're living your life every day in fear, that might be the check engine light that God is saying, you need to pursue me more. Because the more you pursue me, the less the things of this world matter. That was Paul's words. That's what Paul wanted Timothy to know. Hey, Timothy, fan it into flame. Life's not going to get easier. Matter of fact, it might get harder. But God has made a deposit inside of you and everything you need. All the ingredients are there. You just got to mix them up. I heard somebody say the other day, um, he's like, I made the best omelet ever. I put a few eggs in there and I mixed it up with some sugar and flour and out came a cake. I think the same thing can be true of our lives. Some good things can come as we mix them up. God has put it in you. And what you produce out of that 
is never fear when it comes from God. So friends, that's my encouragement to you. Fan into flame. Matter of fact, I, I titled this message, Facing the Day with Hope. I don't want to lie to you. The day is probably not easy, but you can face it with hope because you have the Spirit of God inside of you. Now unleash it and watch what happens. Father, I pray that you would give us a spirit of love and power and self-control that's only found in and through you in one another as we live this life together. God, would you help to encourage us in these moments? Would you produce in us what we need for this day? And I pray that our lives would be a living reflection of our trust in you. In Jesus' name.